Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Back to cardiology. So we did a great job together talking about the changing paradigm of cardiovascular disease. We talked about risk factors, and let's talk about cardiac imaging. And I definitely want to start off with chest x-rays, and let's work our way down. So when we talk about chest x-rays, I mean, the way I look at it, you say shortness of breath. I say x-ray. You got to get one. You know what I mean? Not all shortness of breath has to be the lung. I wish it was. But you say shortness of breath, it could definitely be the heart. It definitely could be, are you anemic? Because what do all those three have in common is oxygen. The lungs bring it into us. The heart actually delivers the oxygen and the red blood cells, they carry it. So it's going to be one of those three. So the bottom line point is you're going to get chest x-ray. So a couple of things specifically focusing on the heart, you know, anytime you look at a chest x-ray, I mean, you want to say things like, is it over-penetrated, under-penetrated? Over-penetrated means everything is going to be dark, 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 black, black, black. If it's under-penetrated, light, 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 white, white, white. And of course, rotation. Because when we talk about, is there a widening of the mediastinum, the most common cause is always going to be, is it just rotated? It can do that. So you want to look at some common sense things before you start talking about the heart. Also, I wanted to mention, is it going to be a PA or AP film? And that really makes a big difference when we're talking about the broad terminology is there any large cardiac silhouette? Why? Is because if you were to get a AP film, anterior or posterior film, when do I do that? In the ICU. It's a portable film. You know, the x-ray machine comes and they shoot a film that goes from anterior and whereas the cassette is posterior. So it takes the heart and it magnifies it. So the, the heart could appear falsely enlarged in an AP film. But if you do a PA that's posterior, anterior, what happens? You go down to radiology, you usually could stand up and you're, and you're against a wall. And where is the cassette? You're holding it right here and the film shoots from the back and the image will go to the cassette because you're holding it in the front. So the beam comes from posterior to anterior. That's when you could truly, truly say that the heart looks like it's possibly going to be enlarged. So a couple of side note things. So sometimes when you look at a chest x-ray like this, it could matter less if it's going to be an AP or PA film. The heart definitely looks enlarged. And now I want to be kind of like micromanaging your terminology. If you want to be specific, we technically can't call it cardiomegaly because sure, the myocardium, the muscle of the heart could be enlarged, but you know what surrounds the heart is the pericardium. And what could be inside there? Yep, could be some fluid. So if you have a pericardial effusion, it could make it seem like the heart is enlarged, you know? So the correct terminology is there is an enlarged cardiac silhouette. So when you say that, it implies that it could be the myocardium and the pericardium. But here, the cardiac silhouette is appears grossly enlarged over here. So this one is going to be a little obvious. So when we get chest x-rays, it's not only to talk about, you know, is the heart appearing enlarged? There are other classic things that we could look at on chest x-ray in the cardiology section. 
One of the classics is always going to be coarctation of the aorta. This is going to be an individual that is going to have some high blood pressure, right? And there's going to be a discrepancy of the blood pressure from the upper and lower extremities. So I have a picture of some of the coarctation coming up, and we'll go over what those findings could be. Another classic reason we get chest x-rays is if we think there's going to be pulmonary edema. So definitely there are some findings that are classic when someone appears with heart failure. I do have an example of that, so we'll review that in one second. So here's going to be coarctation of the aorta. So when we think of coarctation of the aorta, what is some of the buzzwords? You said it already. I think you saw it in the past slide. It's rib notching. Now, I'll be honest with you, unless I'm looking for it, I'm probably not going to find it because rib notching is a very, very subtle sign. So hopefully you're going to see my little um, pointer over here. But I think if you go down one, two, three ribs and you go across, you're going to see that there's a little notches in the ribs here, hence the word rib notching. So what does that mean? It's not because the ribs have little indentations in it, but the vessels, the collaterals are going to be so dilated, you get some shadowing off on the ribs, so it looks like a little notching of the ribs. Um, what are some other classic signs that we can see with coarctation of the aorta? What about the sign of three? And so if you don't know what the sign of three is, another word of that, a name for that is called the omega sign, because you know omega kind of looks like an M, kind of. So maybe we should call it the McDonald's sign. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe not. So the three sign or the omega sign. So start off with my pointer up here, right by the clavicle. That's one. In the middle is two and three. So it's kind of like three humps. One, two, three. The sign of three or the omega sign. And the way I look at it, the first hump is going to be what? The aortic knob. The middle part is going to be where the coarctation is. And below it will be distal dilation. This is going to be the omega sign, sign of three. All right, here's going to be congestive heart failure. And, and I'll be the first to tell you, folks, that you cannot diagnose heart failure just based upon the chest x-ray. Because if you told me that this is acute eosinophilic pneumonia, if you told me that this is someone who has bilateral PCP, I mean, pulmonary alveolar hemorrhage, I would say yes, yes, and more yes. But when we think about heart failure, a couple things is that usually it's going to be kind of like a bat wing where it will start off central where the pulmonary arteries are, then kind of go peripheral. So kind of like a bat wing. If this turns out to be a PA upright film, that when you are upright, you should not see a lot of markings over here, right? But when you see markings going towards the head, we call that cephalization. So cephalization of the markings. So remember, even though there are two broad types of markings, there's interstitial and vascular, truth be told, on a chest x-ray, you really, really, really can't tell what's interstitial and what's vascular when you only look at the chest x-ray itself. It's just kind of impossible to do that. So when we talk about um, other buzzwords, I mean, you can't see it here, but if you have septal lines, we can call those curly B lines sometimes. So you take everything put together, and yes, this is something that's going to be very classic when we talk about uh, pulmonary edema seen in someone who has congestive heart failure. So other things, I'm not done yet, when we talk about classic findings on chest x-ray, could be findings of a pericardial effusion. Now, truth be told, you can't see an effusion on a chest x-ray, but the shape of the pericardium could give you that classic water bottle-shaped heart. And you know what? I think I have a picture in there, so just bear with me. And of course, another important thing is to look for calcifications. 
So calcifications around the valves. One of the classic valves we're gonna talk about is the aortic valve. And as we get older, we'll get aortic stenosis. So maybe you could see calcifications. You know, calcifications on the coronary on the chest X-ray, well, that's kind of a reach, isn't it? But if we talk about a CT scan, you definitely can see calcifications there. And that is actually gonna be one of the things that we use to risk stratify individuals to see if they're gonna be at a high risk for coronary artery disease. And sure, maybe if you have a chronic constricted pericarditis, you may see calcifications around the heart. It's not always, but you know, you do definitely need the history and the physical and all these things put together to help make that diagnosis of constrictive pericarditis. So let's see if we have a couple of images. All right, I told you. When you look at this cardiac silhouette, it looks like it has a water bottle shape to it. And you know, how are we gonna confirm this is a pericardial effusion? What are you gonna order? That's right, you're gonna get transthoracic echo. Uh-oh, bonus, bonus case, chief complaint, sudden onset of chest pain, all right. So even though you and I know EKG is gonna be the first thing they order, let's play the x-ray game. Here's the x-ray. So. I think the key thing to remember for your board exams is that they're not going to give you these brain busters, something that's really subtle. You know what I mean? I think, you know, rib notching is way too subtle. I mean, what do we see here, everyone? Widening of the mediastinum. So if you get chest pain with widening of the mediastinum, you want me to say some more buzzwords, right? It has a tearing sensation to it. It radiates to the back. And if you mention all these things, you're thinking about what? Dissection. So you can't really confirm it based upon this. You do need to order more tests, you know? Just for the purpose of this lecture, we got a CT scan. When we look at this, what, well, we'll go straight for diagnosis first. You know what I mean? Boom, what is the diagnosis? So this is definitely gonna be an aortic what? Dissection. So what's the main problem with the aortic dissection? You have a true lumen and a false lumen. And when you look at the aorta over here, this is the ascending, this is the descending. Which one is going to be the true lumen? Is it going to be the, this big old area over here? No. The true lumen is this really, really tiny area over here, and it's getting squashed. Why? Because the false lumen is pushing it. And because it's pushing the true lumen, you're going to hypoperfuse organs, and you're going to get what? Organ failure. You know what I mean? So you can see it here. You can see it down here. And if I were to ask you, when we talk about aortic dissection, there are two types, right? There is a type A and a type B. I'll let you look at it one more time. Is this a type A or type B dissection? This is type A, because it definitely involves the aortic valve, the aortic arch. This is a type A dissection over here. So I wanna talk a little bit about this because this is actually very, very relevant for the board exams. So when we talk about treatment, you know, there's definitely um, the questions you get on the medicine portion of the boards is how we treat a type B dissection. I know I showed you a type A. So what are going to be some of the overlaps between A and B? You both when you want to have blood pressure control. You want to lower the blood pressure and you definitely want to control the heart rate. You want to lower it. But that happens regardless if it's A or B. If it's type A, it's usually not a good medicine board question because there's only one person who needs to be involved. That's going to be cardiothoracic surgery. You should get them involved right away. And there are many things that they can do. Uh, if it's a type B, you know, you may want to get interventional cardiology involved. Medicine may actually have a role in here. Why? It's because after you control the blood pressure and heart rate, 
first line therapy for a type B dissection is something called a thoracic endovascular aneurysm repair. We call it a T-bar for short. So let's talk about T-bars because that would be a great answer for a type B dissection on the board exams. So traditionally, when you want to uh, you know, treat an aortic dissection, we do a vascular graft. Here's the aneurysm over here. And remember, whose law do we talk about when we talk about wall tension and rupture? It's the law of Laplaque, very good. That as the radius increases, wall tension increases. So it's gonna be pushing out on the aneurysm. So what you're gonna do, you're gonna clamp here, clamp here, you're gonna chop out the aneurysm and you're gonna place a what? A graft and connect both ends. That's the classic surgical way we could do things, but it is invasive. It does have a lot of side effects. So by placing a stent in here, a T-var, you don't have to be as aggressive and it has really, really good outcomes. Obviously, there are some finer points that you need to think about. And the main reason why we only do this for type B is because you're not gonna put a, a graft in here for a type A, it's gonna block off the arch and all the vessels that are, are gonna be feeding. So when we talk about a type B dissection, the one that's gonna be medical, um, what is gonna be one of the main neurological bolded red problems that we see in both a traditional graft or a T-var? And the answer is paralysis. Yeah, it's scary, but you're gonna die from you know, this dissection anyways. You know, but then second question is why you get paralysis? And it's all about knowing our anatomy, knowing the vessels. And off the aorta, we're gonna have accessory vessels that are gonna be leaving the aorta and perfusing the spinal cord, perfusing the spinal cord. So you can imagine when you pop in a stent over here or you pop in a graft, you're not gonna be able to perfuse the vessels that feed the spinal cord. And there is one vessel you know, that feeds two thirds of the spinal cord. And the name of that artery, that vessel is gonna be the artery of, I hope I pronounced this right, Adamkowitz. We'll see, I have it there, but let me see if my memory serves me correctly. So the answer is yes, you definitely worry about you know, paralysis. And when we talk about these accessory vessels they are gonna be called the intercostal arteries. So here's the aorta going all the way down. And notice you see all these intercostal arteries are gonna be feeding what? The spinal cord. But there is one artery and it's called the artery of Adamkowitz which actually supplies two thirds of the spinal cord. So you can imagine, look at inside the lumen of the aorta, you put in a stent or a graft, you're not perfusing any of this. So this is definitely one of those uh, risks and benefits that we're gonna talk about before getting consent to do this procedure. So no one wants to be paralyzed. So how do CT surgeons and interventional cardiologists prevent the paralysis when placing a T-bar for a type B aortic dissection. What are things we can do? The answer is, yeah, we put a lumbar drain. Very good. Look at this lumbar drain that we put in there prophylactically. So you're gonna ask me why. It's because of the pressure gradient. So what happens is, I'm going back a little bit. If you put an LP drain over here, if you start draining off a little spinal fluid, there's gonna be less pressure in the areas of the spinal cord. So it doesn't take as much pressure pushing the blood flow from the intercostal arteries to the spinal cord. So what do we do? We just take off a little CSF per hour to help out with perfusion. And we do something else called permissive hypertension. 
because now that we secured the dissection, we could let the blood pressure go up a little bit more because what's going to drive perfusion over here is going to be blood pressure in the aorta and decreased pressure where? In the, around the spinal cord. So these are going to be triple star high yield pearl questions for the board exams. I hope you guys like those too. I think I got one more. So this is always, you know, for some reason, even though it's, you know, we're talking about medicine, they still talk about motor vehicle accidents. They somehow just still make the board exam somehow. And, you know, when we talk about aortic dissection, I know that a classic vignette is someone who come, who has a car accident. And even if they're wearing their seatbelt, always wear your seatbelt, that they have a traumatic motor vehicle accident and they get an aortic dissection. And you know what? Almost all these traumatic aortic dissections happen in one place. Where do they happen? Yeah, they happen right here. They happen just distal to the left subclavian artery, which is right here. So my question is, why? Why do they always happen right there? And so the answer is, is because of something called the ligamentum arteriosum. Because that part of the aorta is actually what? It's going to be secured. So you can imagine if you're securing the arch right here, the distal part is going to be kind of on the fulcrum. It's going to be swinging because you're actually attached right here. So the ligamentum arteriosum is actually a remnant from something called the ductus arteriosus. And usually the ductus arteriosus is going to what? Close. If it doesn't close, we call it a what? A PDA, a patent ductus arteriosus. So once it closes, it forms the ligamentum arteriosum right here. And that's why it's they were just they were swinging. That's why we get lots and lots of those dissections there. That was actually on the board exams not too long ago. It's kind of making you jog your old anatomy memory right there. So I hope you enjoyed that quick pearl right there. So let's go on with a question. We have a 55-year-old woman is evaluated for a three-week history of progressive shortness of breath. She has now had difficulty walking up two flights of stairs, medical history significant for asthma and mitral valve prolapse, and there is some moderate mitral regurgitation. Her last echo was around four months ago, and it showed a mild left atrial enlargement, a normal left ventricle size, and thickness. The patient had an ejection fraction of 65%. Her only med is uh, albuterol that she takes and held as needed. So she has pretty much like a mild intermittent asthma. All right, on exam, Patient's afebrile, normal tensive, non-tachy, non-tachypnic, BMI is 27. Cardiac exam reveals a grade three out of six, systolic murmur going to the axilla. You know that it's classic for what? MR. It's holosystolic because it goes both ways during systole, through the aorta and through the mitral valve. And lungs are clear to auscultation. They do an EKG. It shows normal sinus rhythm. So what are we going to do in this 55-year-old three-week history of worsening shortness of breath? Which of the following is the most appropriate diagnostic test to perform next? Well, they have a lot of things to do. So which ones would you just cross off the bat? I don't think this is an arrhythmia problem. I don't think we need to do 24-hour continuous, you know, ambulatory monitoring here. So I would take off B. You know, as much as I love a pulmonary answer, is there anything in the vignette to make me think that her breathing is getting worse? You know, no. So for right now, I'll take off spirometry. It hurts me a little bit. Is this going to be kind of an angina type workup where we need to do a stress test for chest pain? It doesn't really jump out at me just yet. So I'll take off A. 
So I really do feel that in some with known heart disease where it had an echo four months ago and now things are getting a little bit worse, you know, I really feel you should look at the heart. I mean, he has known heart disease. And of these two choices, what do you think is the best way to do it first? Should we do conscious sedation and ram a esophageal probe <laughs> down, you know, down the esophagus? I'm going to go with no. You know, do simple things first. This is a classic example on the board exams question. You would do a transthoracic echo. Echo is going to be such an important test when we talk about evaluating patients, both in a critical care sense and in a cardiology sense. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.